Greetings Grapple fans, it's time for another dose of professional wrestling pontification as myself, Lorca Mullen, and my co-host, Simon Cross, work our way through every match that Dave Meltzer has rated five stars or higher, beyond perfection, as it were, in the history of his time as the writer, editor, grand wizard, oh god that's cuckoo, Sam, grandmaster oh. of the... Uh, <laughs> Grand Wizard. Have you been playing Red Dead 2? Is that what this is? Uh, no, no. As the head honcho of Wrestling Observer newsletter and kind of seen as the close thing we have to a Roger Ebert-esque great world-renowned critic, a, a Roger Ebert, a Pauline Kale. Uh, what's his face that said fuck on national TV? Kenneth Tynan. One of those kinds. But only for the world of pro wrestling. Do you get any of what I'm saying, Simon? Those were just words coming out of your face, hole. Fair enough. Um, <laughs> but what we are talking about now is a match that took place in All Japan Pro Wrestling on the 28th of January, Gen- 1986. Our first match in 1986, after two matches in 1985. Uh, one of three matches that will cover 1986. And actually the only one to take place in Japan. We will finally be venturing outside of... Uh, the Far East for our show. It's been six episodes of not only Japanese wrestling, but three of these six have been in All Japan Pro Wrestling. Uh, The promotion that really until the late 90s was the place to go and see five-star matches if you were Dave Meltzer and it didn't involve Ric Flair, basically. Take Um, Traders Paradise. Yes, very much so. And what we match we're having tonight, we are covering, uh, involves three of the four in this tag team match. And it almost feels like an interpromotional match. It isn't really, but it's as close as you've got so far to one. Uh, you could argue involves f- the fourth, fifth, and sixth biggest stars in the history of wrestling in Japan. And it is a match between All Japan's Jumbo Saruta and Genichiro Tenru. I hope I pronounced that name right. His name is always bothered me. Taking on the invading army of Riki Choshu and Yoshiaki Yatsu. And it's, in case you're curious, it's Sirota, Tenru, and Choshu that are the fourth, fifth, sixth biggest stars in Japanese wrestling, arguably, after the original god, Riki Dozan, and his two, Isaac and Ishmael, you could almost say, of Inoki and Baba. And, yeah, also, like I said, it's kind of an interpromotional thing, because Riki Choshu did start to kind of change things up in Japanese wrestling, because in New Japan, and in Japan, Japanese wrestling in general, the structure of the main event scene was pretty much always the all-conquering Japanese hero against the Gaijin wrestler. And that had started off with the likes of Riki Dozan against Luthez, and the Sharp Brothers, and all that sort of thing. All the way through to Inoki and Giant Baba wrestling the likes of Stan Hansen, Bruiser Brody, Abdullah the Butcher, Hulk Hogan, Tiger Jeet Singh, all of these sort of characters. And Ricky Choshu was... The Ali thing as well, you could argue. Yeah, Ali, arguably, yes, and all the other sort of 
proto mixed martial arts matches that Inoki was having against the likes of Leon Spinks and other people, uh, judokas and all that sort of stuff, and, and Russian uh, Olympic wrestlers. Um, and Ricky Choshu really started to change that because he wasn't going to sit around and wait for Inoki and Fujinami to take all of the glory. He wanted the glory himself. And his uh, vocal behaviour was made an on-screen facet and he was gradually became not the top heel of sorts, but it was Ricky Choshu feuding with Inoki and feuding with Fujinami that suddenly was making main events in Japanese wrestling be between Japanese talents. And when Choshu finally had enough with the politics of New Japan and he split and went over to All Japan, this is as close as you have to the prototype that would become the NWO that was born from the UWFI, that was in itself born from the original UWF returning to New Japan after their promotion folded. So it's really the first one. The only equivalent of that in America of that time, because everything was sort of... The, the, the territories were regionalized, themselves, yeah. regionalized and they worked within themselves uh, but also cooperated with one another as part of the National Wrestling Alliance except for sort of the, arguably the WWF offshoot and occasional matches between the likes of Harley Race and uh, Bob Backlund and the like the closest thing I guess you would have that in America would be in Memphis when Randy Savage's father's uh, offshoot sort of outlaw promotion ICW battled in real life with Jerry Lawler's Memphis promotion and Jerry Jarrett's, culminating in Savage going over to Memphis and actually invading the promotion. So really, that's the only other examples of that. This is, to Japanese wrestling, this is really the prototypical. You had, like, the Gaijin wrestlers, like, there's the famous moment when, like, the British Bulldogs switched from New Japan to All Japan. New Japan, I can't remember who New Japan brought in as sort of... uh, revenge to that well no actually the British Bulldogs might have been after that doesn't matter um, but the most famous one of that was Stan Hansen Bruiser Brody and Jimmy Snooker finishing one tour with New Japan and then the very next night an All Japan tour begins and they invade and that's but that's that's still the Gaijins are always seen as the invaders anyway this is yeah. native trained by New Japan talent going over to All Japan and wrestling All Japan talents would you say heard of really in that era Choshu then was very much not an outsider just in this context, but didn't really fit in anywhere in the sense of um, he'd alienated himself character wise in all Japan and possibly back out of character wise um, in all J- in New Japan by saying he was the best of like, you know, the best around. And he'd already gone and proved that. And on top of him being the invader from another promotion, he was the guy challenging the best that All Japan had to offer in terms of a competitive standpoint as well. And he was challenging All Japan's ideology of wrestling because the wrestling that we see in this match is fairly different to what All Japan usually provides. New Japan had always been more focused around... There was wrestling to it, but it was much more Japanese uh, strikes and martial arts influence. Whereas All Japan really came from a North American understanding of wrestling. It was more map-based. It was inspired by... You know, most of these guys, like Saruta and Tenru, were both trained by Dory Funk Jr. Saruta was the first guy that was really an All Japan trainee. He was signed up pretty much immediately after All Japan was formed. He was Saruta was courted by both New Japan and All Japan, and and everyone basically wanted Saruta at that time because he was just this incredible athlete. He was 
huge for Japanese standards. I mean, and that's one of the things that's notable in this match. He's a big dude. He's oh, build. Yeah. He was billed as six foot six. I think in reality he was six foot four, but that's still tall by any standards, and especially by Japanese standards. Like, especially you look at him against jump uh, against Ricky Choshu. Choshu looks like he's about five ten, five eleven, six foot at a stretch, and he's quite squat and broad with his yeah. look. And it kind of is suit, uh, uh, appropriate that his main moves were like hard lariats and power moves. He looks like that kind of squat powerful sort of wrestler like a taller version yeah. of uh, what you'd see now with like Tomohiro Ishii or someone like that um, Saruta was uh, a huge star, he was an amazing athlete, he was like in his national teams basketball like like national champions in Japanese basketball and college and then he just read an article about amateur wrestling and kind of on a whim tried to get into the Japanese amateur wrestling team and he was met with resistance but within 18 months of reading this article he was at the olympic games Jesus. and he finished seventh in his weight class it's not and bad considering you have only 18 months experience yeah. that's that is unheard of in the amateur wrestling world yeah and so when he comes back to japan he's this all-conquering sports star well not conquering you can't conquer if you come to seventh but you know where i'm coming from and so like i said he was highly courted and he was he was, like, in his first year, he's in America. When he was take, sent to Amarillo, Texas to train, he becomes a big drawing card there. He wrestles for the NWA World title. Then when he comes to Japan, he immediately is positioned as, like, the number two guy behind Giant Baba, where he stays for pretty much up until this time period. Um, and he's just, you know, he's a big star from the off, um, which obviously in Japan is not really usually the done thing. The only person that received similar treatment to that really was uh, Shinsuke Nakamura uh, later on in, um, in you know, 2002, 2003, where he won the IWGP heavyweight title in his first year, full yeah. year of wrestling. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's uh, Jumbo Saruta, so there he's a start, and, and Genichiro Tenru was also a huge, st- well, he was, he was a known sumo wrestler. He wasn't like a tippy, ah, tippy, okay. tippy top guy. But he was of a caliber that his matches would be shown on national TV, so he would be like the equivalent to being in the Premiership, essentially. Right, what he was, and so when he then moved into wrestling after a sort of a falling out about stable, what stable he wanted to be a part of, and the stable he wanted to be a part of, he wasn't allowed to, and then the stable he was in, someone had died. It was all sort of politics, and so he just walked away from the world of sumo. Sodded it off. Which is a very, you know, it's a very strange, hermetically sealed world in and of itself. Is the world of sumo? If you ever read into yeah. it, it's, it's a weird culture, even within, you know, uh, within foreign, Japan, Japan, culture, Japanese. To you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's really does like, explain his build. I was wondering, yeah. like, because he's got like a very, he's they're, they're very wide yeah. men, not fat wide, but broad wide. Yeah, yeah. He's also quite tall as well. He looks like he's about six foot one, six foot two. Yeah. Um, so they look like a, they're definitely a bigger team compared to Riki Choshu and Yatsu. And, uh, Which is weird considering Choshu and Yatsu are the invaders. Typically, the invaders yeah. are meant to be like the invincible objects. Well, that's you know what I mean? Interesting points I'm going to make as the key thing of this match is that uh, it feels, especially in the first half of the match, with the combination of them being smaller, but also Choshu having taped ribs. They are the ones that are sort of fighting from underneath. They're the ones yeah. that can make a bit of a babyface comeback, as it were. And Saruta, in particular, is brutal with his kicks and his attacks. This is 
this has the intensity of an interpromotional match anyway. Like a real, both teams are desperate to win and, you know, despise the other team. Yeah, and they're going to like um, lengths to do it. It's like uh, attacking the, the Choshu when he's on the apron. Yeah. Um, the There's double team moves. The moves the, yeah. yeah, the venom, like the slaps yeah. at the start. Yeah. That is one of the loudest slaps I have ever heard in all my years of watching professional wrestling and possibly of walking the planet. Yeah. And those kicks look like they connect at various points. Oh, that's... It is snug as a bug in a rug. Oh, yeah. There's, there's an animosity in the air, which, again, alluding to the points you've made earlier about uh, Cho Shu's uh, opinion of his standing, mm. probably like got some legitimacy based in like that animosity. Like I mean, this is obviously for the tag team titles that Temru and Saruta have, but like you can tell it's even more important than the titles itself. There are bragging rights at yeah. stake here. The, the belts, the, the belts. notion of lose, not just losing those belts, but losing those belts to an invading army. Yeah, feels of the utmost importance to both sides. Which is always tough in matches like this because the belts sort of become like a passenger, uh, whereas they're meant to be what is being strived for in a sense. It's always something I think sometimes gets caught up in the moment, like. The whole uh, Jericho Triple H thing, WrestleMania 18, mm. like the whole like oh fighting over Steph, did that need a title attached to it? Mm. Um, Lesnar Goldberg, did that need to be for a belt mm. the second time round? So you think this accentuates it rather than just be an unfortunate distraction or a waste of the titles? Yeah, well, yeah, it I think helps, a... it ups the intensity. Well, yeah, but well, no. I think the title, as I said, I think the title just become a passenger in it. I don't it know. Sometimes. I don't know if I agree with that. Like, say the first. Like, I don't like to make it all WWE focused, but let's just say, for example, the fact that the first match between all three members of the Shield in a triple threat was not only about that, but also about the WWE title, and also about which brand got the WWE the title. title. Yeah. It was like three different layers of importance. So there's three extra, you know, it's like cherry on top and then, you know, on top of the icing. And I don't think that's a problem. I think that made that match feel even more significant. Like okay. it felt more significant, you know. Um, but with that, the title was like the centerpiece because there's two of those, two of those three things involve the cha- the championship and its importance. Yeah. But I don't but feel... the championship's important. But that's what I'm saying. It's not just that it's for the championship. It's that if you lose it, you it's like like don't you think it hurts Man United more when they lose the league to Man City? Oh yeah, undefinitely. Than if they lost yeah. it to Chelsea. Yeah, yeah, it does. So that's but... my point. That's what this is like. This is like losing it to Man City. But I, I don't know, I just the way it felt to me, it didn't feel like the titles were a factor, and you're saying that's a positive. I'm saying no. I think the titles are a factor. The the, t- the the stakes of the titles are even higher. It's not just losing the title; it's who yeah. you're losing it to. It's the fact that Daniel Cormier is probably happier to lose to not happier, but can accept losing to someone like uh, Gustafsson more than he could have than when he lost it to John Jones. Yeah. Or or when um, Joe Frazier loses to Muhammad Ali means more to him than if he'd have lost to George Foreman. Okay, okay, I see, I see, I see where you're coming from. I don't know, just it my just doubles it. It doesn't double it. They're not double negatives. It's yeah, yeah. double negatives makes a positive. But you know what I mean. It's not a subtraction. Yeah. It's an addition. 
Yeah, I'm not saying it's a subtraction. I'm just saying it became the sidecar on the bike. To, to me. To I don't me think it becomes a sidecar. I just think it becomes two layers of equal yeah. importance. I think there are matches where that is the case. I just don't think this was one of them. No, I don't I know why. It's just there's just there was just a feel to me. That I disagree. Wasn't the case. Um, also, like we've seen uh, for a lot of these matches, very high intensity at the start. Like within the first few moments, when Tenny, say. when 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 um, Choshu and Yatsu get some control early on, they make the most of it as quickly as they can. They hit Wait. they hit Tenru with a back suplex top rope clothesline combo and then follow it up with a spike pile driver yeah that's like just insane <laughs> um you could even go before the in-ring action with the intensity when choshu grabs the mic i don't yeah. know what he's saying choshu I don't likes to chat shit it's but really you can obvious. tell he's chatting full-on shit you don't even <laughs> i don't need to speak japanese to know that he, he is giving it the billy biggins he's running his mouth yeah <laughs> And that's what Choshu did. He was like, he did do that sort of stuff. He, he ran his mouth against Inoki, and no one would do that who was, you know, a native. You were meant to be the respectful Tatsumi Fujinami, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Choshu was like, nah, fuck that, man. <laughs> nah, nah, I'm better. And he did ultimately, when, when Inoki got into all of his political scandals in the 90s, it was Choshu that got, got the book and really. You know, I think he was rated the best promoter booker of the decade for the 90s for his work in New Japan. Uh, so he kind of had a bit of a point when he finally got control of the whole thing. Um, so, yeah, just so Choshu himself is actually the one that's a face in peril, despite being the invading heel, as it were. Yeah. And uh, Tenru and Jumbo, Jumbo in particular, are just ruthless. Uh, Jumbo just goes after those ribs and, you know, and what did you think of, like, the level of chaos? It was almost as chaotic as the Funk Brodies Funk's Brody Almost, action, but not yeah. quite. There's a bit more control to it. It still feels more in-ring focused. Like, when there are the sudden brawls on the outside, there seems to be a bit of a reasoning behind yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I was going to say pretty much that. There's, like, a bit more of, like, a surgical precision um, in There's the way. There's a reason that... Saruta goes over and beats up Choshu on the outside in that. He's moment. cutting. He's cutting the ring in half. It's not like uh, the Funks and Brody and Handsome, where it's like I've had enough of this. Everyone's wailing on everyone. <laughs> That's carnage. That was just pure unadulterated carnage. Whereas mm. this is just like uh, ring general people being ring generals and just isolating some dude. Yeah. There's method behind it. It's more tactical. Um, uh, yeah. Go on. Sorry. I do love the development of... Um, we talk about Choshu a lot in this. This does seem very Choshu-heavy, this match. Mm. I don't know if that was the intention due to the star factor that well, he had. it's pretty obvious that he was the star. And, you know, you thought, if anyone's taking the fall, yeah. it's Yatsu. Oh, yeah, yeah. He, didn't, I he do... didn't look as charismatic. He didn't look as polished in the ring. No, to... no. And obviously, I didn't... It's not that he was bad. It's just compared yeah. to the others. I try not to look at all the factors surrounding before I watch these matches because I want to just see like the wrestling through fresh eyes. I don't want to like have the rose-tinted nature, which I alluded to with some matches I've seen in the past um, on a previous episode. And just through fresh eyes, like, you could tell Choshu was the star without having any back knowledge. Mm. Like, he was the I leader put of a... the invading army. Yeah, I put this match in front of anyone. Even without saying there's an invading army, you could just say, that dude's like the bot. That's that's the guy. That's the threat for the other team, and that's 
the, the carrier, the water carrier, mm. like the leader for the and, team. And the fact that he has that weakness and they target it immediately. It's... And they develop it. It's when he comes back with more taping on his ribs. It's just, you don't see, it's just the little things like that. It's just the detail. Mm. It's just beautiful. You know, it's just the, they've told, they've added a layer of story without him having to take even like a really, really heavy bump. I think he only like hit the guardrail. Mm. or something like that and he comes back with more taping it just makes a small action especially in this day and age hitting the guardrail is a very small action mm. just makes it seem infinitely more valuable the way he conveys it it's it's weird to see non-physical selling mm. that smooth if you know what i mean because yeah. sometimes i'll like overdo it like when they had uh sean michael's accentuate his um, battering by the Marines to, to drop his title. They like put makeup on him and stuff like that. Whereas this was just nice, simple well, the, in the moment thing. Yeah. The camera zooms in on his ribs before the match starts. So that yeah. it's clear this is going to be a key factor in this match. Yeah. And um, it almost works with his like a uh, trunk style as well. Cause um, one thing I've said to you before we started going on air um, on air, like <laughs> is that it really annoyed me that everyone was wearing black but oh, you're saying they all look alike to you, Simon? Is that what you're saying? It's I'm saying it's difficult when you don't know who's who okay. uh, going into the match, and you look for things sometimes like colorings whilst you're watching. I think they sort of boots, didn't they? Though, like like Tenru, yeah, well... Tenru had like yellow trim on his boots, and Ricky Choshu was wearing white boots, and Yash, Yash I, I'm had just saying... longer black tights more than trunks. Well, yeah. I was making a point about the fact that the black of um, Chosu's trunks accentuates the white of his rib tape. Mm. And in general, if you have four big, big stars and you dress them all in plain black, it, it kind of makes them blend. It, it takes away their individuality a little it's just bit. Like war though, like Tenra always wore black with yellow for yeah. the most part. Uh, Saruta always wore black. Choshu always went with black and white boots. It's just what they wore. It's know? just so... what they wore. And, and I, okay, yeah, I take that point, but it's something you would never see now mm. because people, fa- wrestling fashion has gone beyond that now. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah, I understand where you're coming from. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, some other notes I had was um, Yatsu did Sling Blade at one point, which surprised me. I didn't realize the move was that old, or at least the version of Sling Blade. Yeah. Um,. Wasn't as crisp, but it, so it still looked. I think Jumbo Strut is the first one to bleed in any of these matches that we've covered so far. Yeah, it's uh, it's, it's not it's not a blade either. It just looks like he just takes as like a blade. Sharp. But it, you know, yeah, it could have it could have cut on hard way, but I think it could have just as easily been a blade job. I'm not sure if it because I know it was slightly above his nose. I don't know if it was just like a wayward elbow, but I don't know if his nose was involved as well, and that's accentuated it. But it's, it's just it's really weird because it's yeah. not like the hairline. Mm. like you see with typical blading it's just like someone's put a big blob in the middle of his face like he's wearing um a comic relief nose that's just got like four sizes too big but it was interesting also that the majority of the final stretch was tenru and yatsu in the ring i suppose the logic for that being that if anyone was more likely to take the pinfall on either team even though Tenru was a big star, he was the number three of the promotion after Saruta and after Baba. So if it had been Baba against Saruta, then it, uh, Baba and Saruta tagging together, then it would probably have been Saruta in the ring. That's just how. That's if just anyone's going to get idea. pinned, it's either Yatsu or Tenru on either side. Um, uh, yeah, you Tenru. don't give away your goose with a golden egg. Yeah. 
Uh, Choshu does the Scorpion Deathlock. He was the man that really popularized. I think he might have even invented that move that obviously later becomes known more often as the Sharpshooter. Um, there was a Yatsu did some crazy moves in it. Like he did a big jumping pile driver on um Yat on Jumbo at one point. I think uh, I think it was on Jumbo. It might have been on uh, Tenru. Uh, he also did a... Not so easy, is it? <laughs> no, I just didn't make a note of who it was that he did it on. I'm sure I would have known in that moment, Simon. <laughs> but I just didn't make a note of it. Um, there was, he also did a he also did a sort of Texas Cloverleaf on a Jumbo Saruta that didn't look yeah. as good as it could have been. Uh, yeah, he just seemed to have a, like, a really hard time... He, he sort of got the guy... He sort of got him over well onto his like stomach. Just but then just hold him up. Yeah, it was kind of a lot of the lines actually of the rock sharpshooter. Weirdly, but there was just no high angle elevation of the legs, so it didn't actually look like it hurt that much. Yeah, but Tenru's way of breaking up the hole by running across the ring several times to give himself <laughs> just... momentum to just clobber Yatsu with a clothesline, unleash an unholy clothesline on him. <laughs> It was just a brutal bit. Well, when you and, watch a lot of Tenru stuff, it's just like, oh, you're just gonna hit him, aren't you? Okay, yeah, yeah. that's one way of doing it. <laughs> yeah. Just the lariats and the clotheslines that are being chucked about. There is some absolute beasts yeah. of hits in this. Um, uh, high German suplex by Yatsu on Tenru gets a really long two counts. I think like yeah. some of the fans even think the match was over at that point. Yeah, there was a little bit of a um, key change. Mm. I'm trying to read this last note. Ricky and... Oh, yeah. Yeah, the Ricky's lot, like his whole team were basically saying, That was three! That was three! And I don't know yeah. to maybe give them, like, save face, because pretty soon after that, Tenru hits Yatsu with a powerbomb and gets three counts. So and... It's a decent powerbomb as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that was one of Tenru's key moves at the time. That was basically yeah. his finishing hold. Uh... And we will, we will come back to Tenru and Saruta on opposite sides very soon. And they really popularized the form of wrestling that came to be known as King's Road, uh, in their matches during the uh, the birthing days of the Triple Crown Championship. Um, yeah. That is one match. We, they have at least one singles match that we have to watch uh, later on in our run for 1999. And they were also on opposite sides of a few tag team matches as well. Um, so we've got some more Jumbo and some more uh, Tenru to talk about. We'll talk more about their legacy and, and their careers as it goes on. Um, I think Tenru might be, for your stat heads, the oldest participant in a five-star match in this. I think he had a five-star match at the age of 51. I might Jesus. Be wrong there, but that's, um, uh, I might be wrong there, actually. But that, it might not have been Dave Meltzer that gave it five stars, but that's just that's just one of the things I read recently. Um, but yeah, I don't have much more to say. Do you, Simon? I guess the, que- the key question is, would you give this five stars? Not quite. No, we're getting warmer. We yeah. are getting like slightly warmer each and each time. I I feel oh, quite recent. Oh, you thought this recently. was better than your code to uh, Jaguar code against Linus Asuka? Mm. Oh, right, maybe on a maybe on a par. Yeah, no. Um, what I had in my I head, say, I think maybe... it was better than I think it was better than the Funks against. That's Bobby what Hammond. I was literally about to say. Uh, yeah, I think I guess I... because it had a definitive ending to it. Yeah, and it just was. <sighs> Not to undersell, because not to undersell the Funks uh, versus Brody and Hanson, because what it was was very good at what it was in terms of barroom carnage. 
this was a very much a different kind of tag match. So a lot more double team moves. It was it was wrestling. It wasn't like a brawl. I feel like uh, brawls are all well and good, but for a five star wrestling match to be five star, it's got it's got to be wrestling. You know what I mean? It's got to have more of a wrestling feel to it. Mm. So that's why I'd say this is closer than the other tag match um, that we've seen so far. I would say a couple of things that just let it down for me, I think, was just... uh, I think the the physicality was great, um, but there's sort of like an emphasis... There was... That there was like a period where Cherishu was selling, and I think sometimes you can overdo something slightly. Mm. You know what I mean? Like A lot of the spotlight was on one dude, and in a match with four participants i feel that can be a negative sometimes yeah okay you see where i'm coming from there yeah yeah absolutely i understand where you're coming from um nothing much else to add i thought it was a great match uh again in its time i think it probably would have deserved a five star but i wouldn't quite give it to it now no no um Uh, yeah it's 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 a really good Again, it's a really good way of saying um, I can see why people talked about like how good tag wrestling was um, because this is going to sound like I'm just like bumming, uh, bigging up. This is going to sound like I'm just bigging up like the revival and like um, just sounding like an old timey guy. But tag wrestling in that it didn't seem to follow that just cookie cutter formula that has dogged a lot of like major. Uh, league tag wrestling mm. um and it had a lot more tactical like nous to it mm. which you're not seeing a lot of like for like the lion's share of the time i've watched wrestling mm. you know what i mean it's yeah yeah okay well i think i will do it for this episode simon are you all right with that yeah i'm all right <laughs> yeah yeah i'm all right with that okay. yeah Well, we will, I don't know, finally is the right way of saying it, but we will be moving outside of Japan for the first time this time with our next episode. And it will be in the US for the next couple of episodes, uh, specifically within the NWA territories, as we are going to Florida at the Battle of the Belts 2 event on Valentine's Day, 1986, to see Ric Flair... Many would argue, and maybe Dave Meltzer will be amongst them to argue the greatest wrestler of all time, defending his World Heavyweights Championship against Barry Windham, one of the greats of his time as well, and an interesting person to discuss. One of several Ric Flair-Barry Windham matches that we will be covering on this series. So that's something to look forward to. Uh, but if in the meantime, whilst you wait those next few days until that episode comes out, if you want to get in touch with us, my name's Lorcan Mullen. That's L-O-R-C-A-N-M-U-L-L-A for Apple N for nothing to do with me, mister. And that's my Twitter account, my handle for Facebook, email address if you put in at gmail.com at the end of it, Instagram, letterboxd, whatever you feel like doing, I'm probably on there. Uh, well, not like MySpace, but... I am on MySpace probably, but I just haven't used it since 2003. <laughs> no, 2006, let's be kind. Um, how about yourself, Simon? Um, I, my name's Simon Cross. I am on Facebook. I am on Twitter, where I am known as Simon Cross Free. Uh, so known because it's one of three ways that you can reach me. I've already listed two. The third one is my email, simoncross91 at gmail.com. Um, and yeah. 
uh, you can shoot um, shoot me a message, talk all things five star or not five star, mm. and um, you know we'll have a, we'll chop it up. Yep, we have a show email address of lmtyspod at gmail dot com. Well, there's not much else left to say really for me or for Simon, other than to say thank you for letting us tell you something. Have a five star time until the next time. Why am I so starry-eyed, starry-eyed and mystified? Every time I look at you, fallen stars come into view. Can it be that I'm in love with an angel from above? I ask my heart, my heart replies. Yes, that's just why you're so starry-eyed. That's just why you're so starry-eyed. When we touch, I hear angels sing.